Welcome to Expanding the Continuum, a podcast exploring the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to HIV and forms of intimate and patriarchal violence. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. I'm your host, Surabi Kukay. Thanks for joining us. To make sure that survivors and people living with HIV are getting all the help that they want and that they need, we have to be exploring partnerships, organizations, support systems outside of our own walls. Today you'll be hearing from Ashley Sly and Robin Pereira about partnerships between HIV settings and DV agencies. They lead the Positively Safe Project at NNEDV. Welcome, Ashley and Robin. We're so delighted to have you here, and I'd really love to start by having you both introduce yourselves. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Sotobi, and Futures Without Violence. Um, I am Ashley Sly. I am the manager of the Positively Safe Project at the National Network to End Domestic Violence. I've been at NNEDV for um, over 10 years now, and some capacity during the time working on the Positively Safe Project. So I'm really happy to be here to share some more information with you all. Super excited to be here today. My name is Robin Pereira, and I am the Transitional Housing Coordinator and the Positively Safe Coordinator at the National Network 10 Domestic Violence, and I've been here for about a year and a half now. Welcome, Robin. Thanks so much for joining us. We are so delighted to have you because the Positively Safe Project has been a really great resource in the field, and we're excited to share and learn more from you. Uh, so why don't we start there? Um, tell us about the work of Positively Safe and how this project came to be at NNETV. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for sharing that, how helpful it's been. It's always great to hear that feedback from, uh, from people doing this work. But so the National Network to End Domestic Violence, or NNEDV, as we um, lovingly call ourselves, uh, is a membership organization of the 56 state and territorial uh, domestic violence or dual domestic violence sexual violence coalitions. We were mainly founded to do policy work at the national level in Washington, D.C., but 30 years later, we do a lot more than that. We do capacity building, uh, we have an economic justice project, a safety net project, that looks at technology safety and confidentiality, our women's law project that provides plain language legal information for every state in English and Spanish. Um, So we do a variety of different things, all with the focus of survivors in mind, uh, making sure their voices are heard, that we're addressing the intersection of domestic violence in, in a variety of different ways. The Positively Safe Project more specifically addresses the intersection of domestic violence and HIV. We provide trainings and technical assistance, both in person and virtually now, um, to domestic violence, HIV, and other organizations that are working with survivors and people living with HIV. But in 2010, NNEDV started the Positively Safe Project to address this intersection because at the time there wasn't a lot of conversation happening around the intersection. There were even fewer resources uh, for survivors that were trying to navigate services at this intersection. 
So with a small grant from MacAIDS Fund, um, we developed an advisory group of domestic violence and HIV experts, um, survivors, and women living with HIV. And this group worked together to develop a training curriculum that was then sent out to um, state domestic violence and HIV coalitions to funnel down. And that was kind of the start. And from there, we developed a toolkit, which is available on our website. Uh, and we continue to do trainings um, at the state, national, and international levels, um, as well as we'll do local um, uh, trainings on demand for programs that are interested. Um, and we're really excited about an upcoming awareness campaign to address this intersection um, from survivor voices. So hopefully in the future, we'll have a chance to talk more about that. Um, but we continue to amplify this issue so more domestic violence and HIV organizations see it as an area they need to address. Sadly, um, pre-COVID, I did a workshop and I asked them, like, why do you think there aren't as many people in this workshop? There were three people in there. And one of the advocates said that domestic violence advocates just don't see this as an issue they need to worry about. It's, it doesn't, you know connect to them. It doesn't have an impact on their services, so they don't want to talk about it. Thank you so much, Ashley. And for listeners, you'll be able to download the Positively Safe Toolkit on our website as well. So, you know, you mentioned a couple of different things that I want to kind of dive into a little bit more. Uh, But the last thing you said really piqued my interest, how people feel like this is not an issue they need to deal with. Do you think it has more to do with not really understanding the connections or is there some other barrier to talking about HIV? Because we are talking about sexuality, intimacy. I mean, in violence, we are also talking about sexuality, intimacy and relationships. But is there something that you have observed in your trainings that makes the barriers particular? That's a really great question. Um, I think it's it's a couple different things. Like you pointed out, people don't understand the connection. They don't um, know the statistics that we have. Um, but they also, they don't want to talk about sex and sexuality. Um, I do an activity at the beginning of my trainings just to kind of like lighten the mood and get people comfortable talking about sex because it is a topic, particularly in America, that's kind of taboo. We ask everyone to share a... Uh, a slang word for a sexual body part. And I always started off and, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to go for it. And I, you know, I'll say pussy or cunt or, you know, like, I'm like, these are words that you're going to hear from program participants. We have to be comfortable talking about that. HIV and domestic violence are all about sex, sexuality. So yeah, there's definitely a discomfort there when it comes to the topic. And I think people just feel uninformed. I mean, how many people I've talked to that are like, I haven't thought about HIV since the conversation when I was in sixth grade and we were talking and learning about sex and STIs. And I'm like, wow, that information is probably incredibly outdated, uh, you know, at this time. So yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of things that are at play there when this conversation comes up. Thank you. Yeah. I think those, uh, bar- those internal barriers can present programmatic barriers for us too. So now thinking about the other side of this equation, can you talk a little bit more about why or how HIV testing and care practitioners would benefit from partnering? You sort of started talking about how these partnerships between domestic violence agencies expand the opportunity for care for survivors living with HIV. Can you talk more about 
how the other side works also. Like we can, we've, we've talked a little bit about how it helps TV advocates and survivors, but what is what does it look like from the other end? Yeah, I think it's really important to point out like why these partnerships are in general important for domestic violence and HIV programs. Women that are experiencing domestic violence are three to four times more likely to acquire an STI, and this includes HIV. 55% of women that are living with HIV have experienced domestic violence, and cis and transgender women experiencing domestic violence have higher rates of antiretroviral failure. Um, those are medications um, that individuals living with HIV would take. Is that because of adherence or because of the actual medicine? It is likely because of the, the violence they're experiencing. Uh, being able to continuously take your medications when someone is tampering with them or throwing them away, um, and then being able to continue to get to doctor's appointments. There's a lot of things at play of why someone may have antiretroviral failure. But these are really alarming statistics. To make sure that survivors and people living with HIV are getting all the help that they want and that they, they need, we have to be exploring partnerships, organizations, support systems outside of our own walls. Um, these partnerships not only can help survivors living with HIV be reconnected to care, we open access to PrEP, you know, for, for survivors that are currently HIV negative and to help them remain HIV negative. Um, a lot of organizations, domestic violence organizations, don't have any knowledge about what PrEP is. I, I feel like in doing the trainings, a lot of times, they know the commercial, the I'm on that I'm on the pill commercial, um, but that's about all their knowledge is. They don't really know much about like how it helps survivors or you know how it helps people stay HIV negative. Um, so there's a great opportunity for expanding your prep reach um, by partnering with an organization that works with survivors, um, and then obviously opening up an opportunity for testing. Um, you know, survivors may be interested in getting tested, but just don't know where to go or how to access it. But ideally, each organization is going to also reach more individuals. Um, they also can be working together to identify ways to reach those at the margins. By opening more doors, we expand the reach to more marginalized individuals, ideally. Yeah, I mean, I think that in globally, you know, in the context of COVID, as well as really re-examining our cultural relationship to uh, both Black communities in our country as well as all people of color, um, thinking about partnerships has been one of the primary ways that programs that address violence are really thinking, how do we really reach the most marginalized populations? So this sounds like partnerships operates at, a, at multiple levels. And it's significant also, I think, to mention that in the United States, where it used to be considered a gay men's disease, quote unquote, and it has really evolved to look more like other parts of the world where it's women, mainly childbearing age women. And in the case of the United States, it's black women that are hardest hit by HIV. And so when we think about partnerships, it sounds like it's an opportunity to really go after those culturally specific partnerships to reach the people who need the most. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely... Um uh, space for partnerships there. And it's it's important to kind of keep your ears open when you're building those partnerships because, you know, organizations that I may, may not be familiar with, one of my other partners may be more familiar with. And then that just keeps, we open more doors by having these continued conversations um, outside of kind of our normal group of people. 
Um, but yeah, we, we looking at the statistics, we need to be more responsive to, uh, meeting the needs of really all survivors. Um, but especially identifying that, uh, uh black and African-American individuals are greatly, um, are far greater impacted by, by this, um, intersection. So let's get a little bit more nitty gritty. What do these partnerships look like? How can they look to be effective? What have you observed, witnessed, uh, supported people to develop? Yeah, give us a little more a window into what a partnership can look like. Partnerships can take all different forms and depends a lot on the community and resources. But some partnerships we've seen that have worked really well having a space for a domestic violence advocate at the HIV program on a regular schedule. So this could be twice a month, weekly, kind of whatever the two organizations decide. This is really helpful because for a survivor um, that's HIV positive or living with HIV, they may not be ready to go to a domestic violence service, um, but they want to talk to someone. So being able to go to a place they're familiar with and know that there's someone there when they're ready to talk can be really helpful. It also can be really helpful for, you know, survivors that are still living with their abusive partner to be able to access that support and not have to go to a second place, particularly if they're being monitored. Their partner maybe knows that they're going to the HIV service provider or clinic and is okay with that. So there's just an opportunity there for them to access that support. Additional areas that we've seen work well, obviously cross-training of staff is really helpful. Um, This helps each program have a better understanding of what the other does. And these trainings could even be extended to service recipients, um, help them better understand domestic violence and HIV. Developing a support group for survivors, this one's been really big. I was talking with an HIV advocate, and we were talking about this intersection and, and working with survivors, and she said that of the women that she works with at the HIV uh, organization, 80%, at least 80% of them had disclosed some kind of domestic violence to her, which was shocking. Like we, we've we seen, you know, the numbers 55% of women living with HIV have experienced domestic violence, but, you know, 80% was so high. And we started talking about how a support group could be really helpful for these women. So that's, that's another area that we've seen a lot of success with. And sharing information between materials, so brochures, pamphlets, postcards. Um, I mean, this could be really helpful when it comes to getting information on PrEP to survivors. Um, But sharing resources in general can be really helpful. Monetary resources, again, as another piece, could could be really helpful to break down some of those barriers, you know, when it comes to transportation or childcare, which we know a lot of survivors struggle with. So, if you don't have access to those resources, how am I supposed to come, you know, for my regular appointment with the HIV advocate? Um, so being able to share resources is really beneficial. But I think it's important to be creative. Um, think outside the box when it comes to these things. They don't all have to look kind of like traditional. But for anyone that needs to write things down when it comes to like kind of developing new plans, uh, NNEDV has a collaboration action plan in our online toolkit. It includes places for each organization to note who will be the point of contact, what it is, the mission statement for each organization, and what are the agreed upon goals, and a lot of other information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's fantastic. I mean, this really aligns a lot with Futures' own Q's methodology around building relationships between 
um, health clinics and domestic violence programs. So if there, if there was a, a first step that HIV service programs uh, who want to develop these kinds of mutually beneficial partnerships with uh, DV and sexual violence agencies, if there was a first step that they want to take, what do you, how would you direct that? So to me, one of the first things you need to do is look at the folks you're serving. Who is coming through your doors? Do the majority of the folks who come through your doors come from a specific cultural background? If so, seeking out a culturally or linguistically specific DV program would be a great starting point to appropriately serve your clients that are coming and seeking services. You know, since these programs are also typically really under-resourced, they could really benefit from a partnership. And in order to find these programs, you can contact your state domestic and sexual violence coalition, and they can get you in touch with different programs in the area. You know, they're going to have connections to a lot of the local programs. Um, they won't always have connections to, to all the culturally specific programs. So you might have to do a little more digging in your area and being, being creative on that um, as well can be, can be really helpful. I think it's really important to also when it comes to partnerships is just thinking about the expectations that you have of each other and identifying where's some commonality. I think that's really important to, to identify. You know, oftentimes we could be working with the same people. Um, we just don't know it. I think on an upcoming podcast, we're going to talk specifically about confidentiality, which is really important. But, you know, brainstorm um, or come up with some unique and different collaborative projects that you can both work on. Um, and it could be starting small where, like I said, you're doing cross-training with each other, or it could just be that you're, you know, both setting up a booth at the Pride March that's that's happening. Um, so small things can start to blossom into larger partnerships that are a little more sustainable. That's really great advice. Thanks to both of you, because what we observe is especially when DB agencies or health uh, agencies don't really know or understand what the other one has to offer, there's less likely for a referral and less like re- likelihood for a collaboration. And so when DV and sexual violence agencies are trying to care for survivors living with HIV, what are some pathways? What are some opportunities? I know you mentioned on-site advocates at the clinic because the clinic is a safe place to go. But are there other ideas or examples you can share of ways that advocates have worked with HIV service providers to improve their support for survivors living with HIV? You know, you can create a group for survivors who are positive, as well as, you know, gaining information on state laws when it comes to criminalization and confidentiality, bringing experts on the intersection, you know, to discuss with program participants and learn and implement better medication storage procedures, especially if your program has folks living in communal settings. You know, the Positively Safe Project actually developed a document, 17 things you can do to make a difference for survivors living with HIV, and it lists all the benefit of those partnerships. You know, that document can be found in our online toolkit. I think, I mean, one easy way to kind of break down the stigma of HIV is get tested yourself. I, I mean, last year I did um, a live HIV test for NNEDV's um, Instagram audience, um, just to show how easy it is. It's a prick of a finger. You know, they ask you a few questions. It's, you know, something we, we should all be doing and just become more knowledgeable about HIV and, and a lot of the the supports available for individuals living with HIV um, and learning about the medications that 
people have to take, like Robin mentioned, the storage procedures, that's really important to to look at what is your organization doing. And if you're collecting medication, are you breaking laws by doing so and then dispensing? That's really important. You know, one thing I just would like to say is that specifically for DV programs, these are adults that are coming in. So to not have access to condoms or be able to refer them out to get contraception, you are really doing a disservice because these are grown adults who will have a sex life. And maybe that's controversial to say, but to deny them those options, you're not doing the right thing. You know, we actually were in another state at a trading and we brought in our positively safe consent condoms and trying to hand them out. And we had a person come up and said that they were going to take them to their sister because she is a big old, um, very not nice word. And to really bring so much stigma on sex, it's extremely problematic. And I just, I don't know, have those ready and available because you know what? Survivors are adults and they're going to make their own decisions and they should be able to readily access contraception. Mm -hmm. This actually brings up a constant dilemma I think in domestic violence especially in the shelter work um, around what kind of container we create so I think Robin expresses pretty clearly like we have to create containers that are actually safe for the people so that means that they get to express themselves with their bodily autonomy and but any other observations experiences or examples of how shelters have navigated this you've talked a little bit about medicine storage but other thoughts, I mean, I know there are lots of intersections here between substance dependence, HIV, mental health needs. And what can you share about, um, you know, for sh- shelter directors, shelter programs that are trying to navigate this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's a challenging area. I think providing support for domestic violence in general is is not easy work. It is physically, mentally demanding on us. I think when it comes to substance use, it's one area that a lot of domestic violence programs have not done well. We have seen time and time again, survivors being kicked out for coming back to the programs high or drunk instead of allowing them a safe place to to sleep um, and stay. We need to figure out a way to address that um, and create more safe spaces. But I think this also brings up the larger question of like, are communal shelters really the best thing for anyone when you're coming from a traumatic experience? Like that's, in my opinion, the worst thing that that I would want to to be living in. You know, a private space could be really helpful for someone not sharing a bedroom with a woman and her two other kids. So what is the what's the future of of shelter look like? You know, are we are we going to actually have shelter spaces or do we move towards, you know, uh, apartment style, which allows people kind of the freedom to express themselves, um, you know, where where we don't necessarily have to control who comes to visit. You know, shelter spaces create a lot of um, barriers for survivors to to heal. If I can't have my friend over, my sister over, my brother over, well, how am I actually being helped in this space if this is my support system? I mean, there's still a number of programs that, that have really struggled with allowing teenage boys. We still hear that, um, even though I feel like we should have been past that years ago. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of challenges that come with this. Um, 
you know, but we, we can work together to be, create more trauma-informed, survivor-centered spaces. I think connected to that, making sure the services we're offering, one, are voluntary, but two, are actually responsive to their needs. That there's, we're not just creating a list and like, that's our list. Yeah. Anyways, thank you, Robin. I thought that was a great point. I, I think condom access is, is huge and programs don't often have condoms on hand. Yeah. I mean, this actually like begs a, another question. I'm kind of going back to the stigma that you started to talk about around HIV, you know, to destigmatize HIV as advocates goes a long way to creating safer spaces. But I'm wondering if there's any, if you've had experience or observations around, you know, why people might not access DV services because of the stigma related to HIV, like where those institutional barriers prevent care for survivors. I mean, I think in, in general, um, programs have not always been set up to be supportive. They're kind of just a, they're there in an emergency, if that makes sense. They, they're there for 30 days. Okay, you've been here, your 30 days is up, and now you move on without actually acknowledging that there's more to the domestic violence and healing than just needing a bed to sleep in. And then the additional stigma around, I think, HIV and a lot of things, really, uh, mental health, uh, substance use, boiled down to the collection of information, if that makes sense. Um, programs demand a lot out of survivors when they come in. They want their history of, of domestic violence. They want their sexual history. They want their drug use. They want uh, mental health diagnoses and the medications they're taking. All of these things really create a barrier for anyone, you know, to access services. So if you, if you are an individual that's living with HIV and you've experienced domestic violence, I shouldn't have to hand over that kind of information in order to, to have a bed to sleep in if that's all I need or to access a support group. But I think in general, like I mentioned earlier, there's just a lack of knowledge on domestic violence and the intersection of HIV and then on HIV in general that people just don't understand and haven't taken the time to, to get more knowledge on. Yeah. This is a great first start. I I want to give an opportunity for you to share where people can access your resources for either more information about the intersections of HIV and domestic violence or specifically the material around Positively Safe, the project you all run. So you can go on nnedv.org and check out the Positively Safe tab. There has our online toolkit with all the resources that we mentioned today, as well as others. And we're always willing to roll out new documents. If you have any ideas of new program materials that you would like to see, you can always reach out to Ashley and myself. And on there has our joint email, which is dvhiv at nnedv.org. Also, you can always shoot us an email if you're interested on more information on building partnerships, technical assistance, or bringing a training to your organization. Excellent. Thank you so much, Robin. And I just want to draw people's attention also to HIV resources by Futures, which the, which are connected to the training um, that you can find at ipvhealth.org. 
So thanks. I want to extend uh, appreciation to both of you for sharing your experience and thinking with us. Uh, I think that these kinds of conversations will only enrich uh, both practitioners in HIV and domestic violence. We look forward to talking to you again. Great. Thank you so much for having us. This was absolutely wonderful, and I can't wait to have more conversations. Thanks for listening to Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and nnedv.org. I'm Surabi Kuke. See you next time.